Well, I want to start with some perspective. We're continuing through the book of Joshua. And to get that perspective, we're actually going to start in Genesis. So turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 9. That's where we'll begin today. Genesis chapter 9. And it's good sometimes to, to stop and just get that perspective or to get your bearings, isn't it? If you've ever been lost and wondered how you got there, you'll know how important it is to get your bearings. <laughs> One time on a family vacation, uh, you know, I grew up in central Missouri, and we were headed back to Missouri from Mount Rushmore. We went to South Dakota and saw Mount Rushmore. And we were driving along, and Dad was taking us back home, and all of a sudden we saw a sign that said, Welcome to Wyoming. He needed to get his bearings, didn't he? <laughs> My dad is famously bad with directions, and uh, we, we had to make a U-E and go east. That was the correct direction. But perhaps more applicable to what we're dealing with here today and in the book of Joshua, have, have you ever been in a, a complicated relationship and wondered how you got there? Have you ever thought back to, so-and-so really doesn't seem to like me, and I don't know why. <laughs> I don't really know what was said. I must have said something. Uh, there are lots of relationships that we have that are similar to that, aren't there? Well, if we aren't careful, we start to feel that way about Israel and Canaan, the Israelites and the Canaanites. You've got, right now, we're in the middle of Joshua, and Joshua's leading all of God's people to drive out these wicked Canaanites in the land. And you might just get stuck in these chapters and think, why are we doing this? What happened? Did, did the Canaanites say something about the Israelites' mom, or, or what was the deal here? Well, um, the initial problem actually is familial. It wasn't a yo mama joke or anything like that, but it, it was something that had to do with parents. And so look with me at Genesis chapter 9, verse 20, and let's see where this all began. Genesis 9, verse 20, it says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Well, this was uh, the time after the flood where God had wiped out the entire population of the earth, save a few. This eight-person crew, Noah's family, was saved through the ark, and of course the animals were saved, and they were to repopulate the earth. After the flood, God made a covenant with all the earth. This is the, the sign of the rainbow. God made a covenant saying He would never again destroy the earth with a flood. Very important moment in biblical history. And there's an opportunity now for this eight-person crew to start again and to start off right. And you see, we don't even get out of the chapter where God has made His covenant with all of creation, and they've messed it up again. They've messed it up again. Noah blew it, and so did Ham, his son. Now, it's interesting, perhaps Noah had never been around wine before. I mean, this 
Seems like it may have been a new practice for Noah to begin farming and to plant a vineyard. He may have been unfamiliar with some of how all that worked, how fermentation worked. But at the end of the day, Noah acted foolishly here, didn't he? Noah became inebriated, and he was naked inside of his tent. And his son, Ham, reveled in his foolishness. Noah's son, Ham, did not protect his father, did not revere his father, but instead reveled in the foolishness of his father. Notice with me again in verse 22, and you can also see it farther down in the passage, how Ham is described. This is some foreshadowing here. Ham is the father of Canaan. Now, he had other sons, he had other children, but he's particularly called the father of Canaan. That's the key descriptor of Ham. This became Ham's legacy, legacy the legacy that was tarnished. He was known to be the father of this wicked child, Canaan, and all of his descendants. And we also saw in this passage, starting in verse 25, how Noah pronounced an oracle and a curse, and it's a curse upon Canaan. It's not a curse directly upon Ham, is it? Sometimes people will talk about the curse of Ham, and usually that comes with a lot of bad teaching. But the curse here is on Canaan directly. Of course, Ham was affected, but it's cursed be Canaan that Noah declared. And Noah declared that he should be a servant. You see that in verse 25. Slavery was to be a major part of the existence of those who come from Canaan, which are called Canaanites. The Canaanites were to be primarily a servant people, a slave people. And when you think about the book of Joshua, you may remember just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the Gibeonites. They were Canaanites. They were from the city of Gibeon. That's why they're called Gibeonites. But they were from Canaan's line. And they deceived the Israelites. And what was the result? They're slaves. They were not sons in Israel, but they were servants and they were slaves for the rest of their time. The other two sons that Noah had listed here are Shem and Japheth. Shem, this is quite interesting. Shem is where we get that word Semitic. It comes from the name Shem. You've heard of people who are anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic. They're against the Jewish people. Well, that term Semitic, you may wonder where it comes from. Well, it comes from the name of Shem. He was the father of Abraham eventually. Abraham came from the line of Shem. Japheth, the other brother that's listed here, he was a father of Gentiles. Through history, the Persians, the Romans, and other Gentiles came from Japheth. And the very next chapter, we won't look at this today, but chapter 10 of Genesis lists out what happened with all these people, who beget who, and how those people moved around on the face of the earth. And part of this oracle, not just the curse, but part of the oracle was that Shem would be blessed, and that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem. Yet Canaan, the Canaanites, they were to be cursed. And if you know much about the biblical storyline in the Old Testament, you know that Canaan's line went on to be marked by immorality. The Canaanites were always talked about negatively. They were an immoral people, and they were always antagonistic to Israel. They weren't dwelling in the tents of Shem, but they were antagonistic toward Shem's line, always fighting against Israel. And those are the ones who are dwelling in the land as we get to the book of Joshua. The ones dwelling in the land are the Canaanites, the ones who are cursed. But before we get back to Joshua, let's make another stop along the way in Genesis 15. So just turn a page or two over to Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 to 16. This is now after Abram has come to be, and God has called Abram out of the land of Ur, and he's been given a special promise. 
Genesis chapter 15, beginning at verse 12, it says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not complete. Well, Abram had already been told in chapter 13 quite explicitly that the land that God had had brought him to was his land and it belonged to his descendants forever. That was a forever promise that God gave to the line of Abram, never to go back on that promise. It was an unconditional promise. And here, Abram is being told, but before you guys get to this land, there's going to be a 400-year parenthesis, so to speak. There will be oppression among the descendants of Abraham. There will be oppression among the Israelites as they would come to be known. They will be oppressed for 400 years. In verse 14, the promise is that that nation who oppresses them will be judged. God will judge that nation. And we know, of course, that Israel went down to slavery in Egypt and then came out. And the promise in verse 16 is that in the fourth generation, when they return to the land, they will be able to dwell there. But the sin of the Amorites, the iniquity of the Amorite, had to be complete. That's what was, uh, that was what they were waiting for. The sin of the Amorite had to be made complete. The Amorites, we see them come up in the biblical narrative over and over again. Guess what line they're from? Canaan. They're Canaanites. These are the Canaanites. And they were the ones dwelling in the land, and they're the ones that Joshua had to drive out with the rest of Israel. But their sins had to be completed, had to be fulfilled, had to be filled up to a certain measure before God said, okay, it's time to enter the land. Isn't that fascinating? You see, even in God's judgment, we see something about His patience, don't we? I told you before how I love that word, God is long-suffering. That's a better word than patience just because it says so much. God is long-suffering. And even here, God is being patient and waiting for a certain time. So a time of oppression will commence, Abram is told. It will last a long time, but then the tide will turn, so to speak. Generations later, the tide will turn, and what God is telling Abram in this promise is that they will turn from uh, those who are being oppressed into victors. They will no longer deal with oppression. They'll be dealing with victory and what God is doing. And it'll happen by the way of the law, God gave them a foreign policy in the law, and this is the last stop we'll make on the way back to Joshua in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Turn with me to the book right before Joshua. It's the book of Deuteronomy chapter 20. The way that they were going to turn into victors was by way of God's law. For Israel, there was no other way. Israel was under the law. Israel was obligated to the law. The law, in many ways, was customized for this people, Israel. And this is one of those places. If they were going to be victors... They were going to have to obey the foreign policy that God gave them in the law. Now, in this section, God had already told them that they were allowed to make peace with other cities, given that those cities were far away. Israel could make peace with other people, but they had to be a faraway people. God says specifically in the passage we're about to look at, they could not make peace with the Canaanites. 
Those who were dwelling in their land, they could not make peace with them. Start with me in verse 16, Deuteronomy 20, verse 16. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God." So you see the Canaanites listed there. That was what a particular group of Canaanites was called. They retained the name Canaanite. But all of these groups were from the line of Canaan. The the person who lived as the son of Ham. All of these people came from the line of Canaan. And God says they are to be driven out. They are to be utterly destroyed. None of them are to be left breathing. And Again, we can get so caught up in that relationship that we're in in Joshua where it's like, okay, they really don't like the Canaanites. Why? Well, it all starts with, cursed be Canaan, those words that came out of the mouth of Noah. It starts there because Noah pronounced it, and this was God's judgment on that line for what happened. From that moment forward, from when it happened in Noah's life, there was an antagonistic relationship between God's people and those from the line of Canaan. They are their cursed enemies, the Canaanites are, and they're occupying their promised land. Now, we've entered the part in Joshua. You can go ahead and turn with me to Joshua 10. That's where we are today. And we've entered the part in Joshua where they're having great success, the Israelites are. They're doing really well. They've turned from a people that were measly, wimpy, and beaten up all the time to having success battle after battle after battle. And if you've ever been a part of a winning team, you know how exciting that is. I was on two football teams in my life, if you can believe that. Not exactly built for football, more of a golf guy, you know. Uh, <laughs> body by golf. Uh, and, uh, but I was on two football teams, and I was a tight end both times, which really might surprise you if you know anything about football. That just does not fit. But the first year I played, I was on the Dolphins. And that was great because the Dolphins were my favorite NFL team. I loved Dan Marino, and so I loved being on the Dolphins. And we were good, particularly because we had one kid that was really good. And we won all of our games. We went all the way to the championship of this big regional thing, and we lost the championship. But we won every game all the way through. And I scored a touchdown that year, caught a pass as a tight end. It was great. It was having a lot of fun. But you probably know what I'm about to say about the next year. (laughs) I was on the Vikings. Who wants to be a part of the Vikings, right? I was on the Vikings, and that team was really bad. In fact, we only scored two touchdowns all year. Now, we happened to win both of those games because the teams we were playing in those games were worse than us and didn't score any, any points. But we won both of our games six to nothing, and every other game we didn't score any points. And that was absolutely miserable. I didn't like that coach. I loved the previous coach. I didn't like that team. I loved the previous team. I didn't like losing. I like winning. Most of us relate to that, don't we? We like to win. And football's a competition. I want to win. And that was the end of my football career. The small school I went to was far too small to have football. uh, And so never had the opportunity again and wasn't quite interested. Well, Israel has turned from the Vikings, per se, to the Dolphins, if you can put it that way. They were used to getting so beat up, but now they are winning Battle after battle after battle. 
We heard in the opening reading from, that Jerry read for us from the end of this chapter that they were winning because Yahweh, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Because He was fighting for them, they were winning. And last week, we covered the account, the first half of chapter 10. We covered the marvelous, the miraculous event of the sun standing still during battle. And this was just an amazing act of God to support His people. How was God fighting for Israel? Well, you can read those first 15 verses and see quite clearly just how He was doing it through miraculous signs and wonders and causing them to be victorious. But what the author here is doing for us in the middle of chapter 10 is he's actually going back and providing us some more detail about what was happening during that time. While the battle was raging, while the sun was standing still, we have to be informed here of where the kings were. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 5, we heard about these various kings. You can see them listed in verse 5 of uh, chapter 10. The kings are listed, and then we don't know what happened. We know a bunch of people fled, but what happened to the kings? Well, we find out at the beginning of our passage today that these five kings hid themselves. These five kings that were very valiant, honorable men of integrity ran into a cave. <laughs> While all of their people were out fighting the battle, the kings moved their collaborative meeting into the darkness of a cave. And so we'll pick up in chapter 10 here to see what Israel did. The first thing was that they moved some large stones in front of the cave to block their way out. They couldn't get out, and then they kept fighting the battle. Well, let's pick up in uh, verse 18. It says, Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies and attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And it came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a very great slaughter until they were destroyed, and the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities, that all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. Verse 22, then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. <laughs> so that's some background as to what was going on last week when we were looking at the battle. The kings were tucked away in a cave, and now Joshua is saying, come on out. They went in as kings. They went in as royalty. They were defined by their rule and their reign over other people. They were defined by their power. But how are they coming out of the cave? Not as kings anymore. Rule and reign has been taken away. They're powerless paupers now. They're no longer kings defined by authority, but now they're captives, and they're at the mercy of God's people, Israel. In verse 20, we read that the battle, it really was a great slaughter. This was a really, really massive slaughter that took place. There were five kings that were hiding, and all their people were fighting, and they were all slaughtered, except, it says in verse 20, the survivors who remained of them entering the fortified cities. But it says here at the end of verse 21 that no one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. That's how great this display was. That's how great this display of God's strength through His people was. That no one dare utter a word after such an event, lest they too be judged. It's actually quite similar to what God did in Egypt. In uh, Exodus chapter 11, Moses is speaking with Pharaoh and he's saying, look, 
One more plague, it's going to get bad, Pharaoh. Turn, repent, Pharaoh. And I want to read to you, this is Exodus 11, verses 6 and 7, what Moses said. He said, Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So as God was bringing about that promised judgment, the judgment He promised Abram of this nation that oppressed Israel for 400 years, as God was here bringing about that judgment through His prophet Moses, He says, look, I make a distinction between Israel and Egypt, and I'm going to, I'm going to blow up Egypt so bad here, so to speak, that not even a dog is going to bark against Israel. It's going to be so clear whose side God is on, the side of the Israelites, the side of his people. And that's what's happening here in Joshua chapter 10. And now Joshua is going to make a public display of these kings. Pick up with me in verse 24, Joshua 10, 24. It says, when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. Joshua then said to them, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. It came about at sunset that Joshua gave a command, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Well, Joshua made quite the display here, didn't he? This was a symbol of complete subjection. I mean, how, how embarrassing, how shameful, how humiliating for these kings to come out of the cave as captives. But not only that, to have the chiefs in Israel put their feet on the necks of these kings. You think that's a powerful display? Do you think that said something optically to Israel? You hear about people sometimes in businesses and organizations that are big into the public relations, that something would be bad optics. Like recently when a person you all know spoke in front of a glowing red background like a dictator. Bad, <laughs> bad optics, right? Bad optics. Well, what kind of optic was Joshua shooting for here? He was shooting for something, and I think the message was loud and clear. Their enemies became a footstool for their feet, didn't they? You've heard that phrase in the Bible? Enemies will become a footstool for their feet, and here they are, the necks of their enemies have become their footstool. What a powerful image. And that's an important image in biblical theology, this symbol of subjection, foot, a footstool for their feet. Because you know, when God grants victory, He doesn't keep it a secret. When God gets a victory, He doesn't tell everybody, hush, hush. He likes to make a public display of victories. In fact, you can read about in Colossians 2, 
when, it's, when Jesus died on the cross, you know what it says His interaction was with the spiritual forces of darkness? It says that Jesus made a public display of them because He was triumphing over them. So some people look at the cross and see a picture of defeat, but no, Christian, you look at the cross and you see an image of victory. He was triumphing over the spiritual forces of darkness. In Romans chapter 16, we just covered this in Sunday school recently. Romans 16, do you know what it says your future relationship with Satan will be like? This is good. What is your relationship with Satan going to be like? Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. I love that. I really like that. There's going to be clear public display of victory. That's what, God, that's what God does. He's in the business of bringing glory to Himself, you know. And He does that through public displays of His power and His victory over the enemy. This is, again, a, a great theme in Scripture, this enemies being a footstool for the feet of God's people. In Psalm 110.1, you can jot this down, Psalm 110, verse 1. It's an incredibly important verse. It says, "'The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Lord says to my Lord that He's going to do this. This is the Father speaking to the Son. And this is the most quoted or referenced verse in the New Testament. Did you know that? 20 references or direct quotes of Psalm 110.1 in the New Testament. 20. You think God cares about getting the victory and showing the victory, having a public display over his enemies. And here in this verse, we learn, of course, in the broader context of the whole Bible, that Jesus is this great commander, isn't he? We saw in Joshua 5, he's the commander of the Lord's army. He, he accepts worship, and he leads his people. He goes before his people as a divine commander. And ultimately, Jesus is going to have great victory over every spiritual enemy, over, over every person that comes up against God, Jesus is going to have total and complete victory over that person, and all of His enemies will be made a footstool for His feet. King Jesus will be undefeated. He will go whatever, however many victories, and zero. Zero losses. He will be ultimately, utterly victorious. And so in Joshua chapter 10, we have Israel just experiencing a taste of the ultimate victory. Now, it's a powerful taste. It's a good taste. It's a very meaningful taste in their history, but this is just a taste of the broader, bigger picture of God bringing about victory over His enemies. Ultimately, at Jesus' second coming, you can read about this in Revelation 19, when Jesus is the rider on a white horse and He has a sword coming from His mouth and His eyes are a flame of fire and He has a robe dipped in blood, He's going to show that He's the ultimate commander. He's going to reveal that He is the ultimate victor. Well, as you run your eyes over the rest of this chapter from verse 29 down through the end, you see that Israel went on to dominate every single battle. They're winning over and over and over again. This is the southern conquest of Canaan. Next week, we'll see the northern conquest of Canaan, and I'll probably share a map with you and we can get a better grip on the geography there. But this is the southern cities. These are probably the most strategic cities that Joshua could have attacked at this time, that he was weakening the Canaanite forces that were in the land as they were in, taking their inheritance, the land that was promised to them by God. 
And you see with each paragraph, we won't read through them, but you can run your eyes over each paragraph. You can see that the format is pretty much the same from paragraph to paragraph. In verse 29, it talks about Libna, and it goes on in verse 31 to talk about Lachish, and then it goes on in verse 33 about Horam, and on and on it goes, talking about these different cities. The descriptions are similar, and this was one big campaign. This wasn't go to a battle and then go home for a while, go home to a battle, or go out to a battle and go home for a while. This was all one sweeping campaign that was full of victory. Israel was successful. And I want to remind us why they were successful again at the end of this chapter, verse 42. How did Joshua capture all these cities? Well, Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. The commander brought it about. The commander of the Lord's army, Jesus Christ himself, gave Israel the victory. He commanded and he led into the victory. The one who cannot be defeated but slays all his enemies was giving them victory. This is Jesus Christ. He's also the one who allowed himself to be slain for the sake of the world, and he's the one who's returning to slay his enemies and give his people victory at his second coming. Israel was experiencing so much at that time, weren't they? We just read it paragraph by paragraph. You can sit there and read it in just a couple of minutes, all these battles that they had fought. But this took time. It was bloody. It was painful. It was very real. And you've got to imagine what this was like for Joshua, the human commander of the army, the one who was designated to lead this people. He, he was in Egypt. Do you remember that? Joshua was in slavery in Egypt. He went through the Red Sea. He went through 40 years in the wilderness, and now he's here. He has seen a total turnaround in the life of Israel. I mean, that's a fascinating life that Joshua lived. He got to see all sides of, of the story. Well, what was God teaching him and the rest of Israel, and what is God teaching us through this story, through this revelation? Well, they had no real reason to be afraid. Israel didn't but they still needed encouragement. Look with me again at verse 25. I read it a few minutes ago, Joshua 10, 25. Did you see, did you notice what Joshua said? It's the same thing that God has told him over and over again. Joshua said to the chiefs, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. Remember that came up multiple times in that first chapter, God telling Joshua, be strong and courageous. Now he's telling the same thing to his commanders or his chiefs rather of the different divisions in Israel. Be strong and be courageous. They had a natural inclination to be afraid. Because the battles were real, because the battles took time, because the future to them was a little unpredictable and scary, they had to be told, be strong and be courageous. The faithful God is with you. The one who called Abram out the one who made a nation out of Abram, the one who said, this land is yours, the one who said, I go before you, he is with you. We also see here that God was teaching them the meaning of victory, and he teaches us the meaning of victory. Because God gives real victory over real enemies, doesn't he? We're not just speaking hypothetically here. This is real stuff. These are real enemies 
and a real victory that God is giving, could God have just zapped all of those kings and been done with them? They were all in the cave. That's, that's, e- that's easy, even from our perspective. From God, it's all easy, right? He could have just zapped them and been done. But He didn't. He didn't do that. Israel had to face their enemies. And these were real scary people. It's not like their enemies were just a bunch of weaklings. They're big people, strong people. They were warriors, trained for war, ready for war. You going into that situation, how would you feel? You'd be scared. If you had a husband or brother or son going out into battle, wouldn't you naturally be scared? Some of you have experienced that with just the wars that America has fought. There are real enemies in a real battle. But they also got to enjoy a real victory, didn't they? It wasn't easy street. It wasn't a cakewalk. It wasn't God snapping His fingers and saying, okay, it's all over. Enjoy your gift. But they got to their victory through the battle, didn't they? And they had to go through the battle. There was no other way. There was no other way. God had parted the Jordan River. He did that miraculously. He made the sun stand still. That was miraculous. But they still had to face their enemies. They still had to go into battle. There was no other way. And then they built a real monument. Again, at the end of this passage in verse 27, after they slayed the kings. Verse 27, did you notice that? There's yet another monument. We keep seeing monuments here in Joshua. There were real enemies. They had a real victory. And then they got a real monument out of it. This was a sign to the nation that this had happened. It was a memorial that they would remember always that that monument is there because our God gave us real victory over real enemies. And God's people have always needed these type of tangible faith builders, haven't we? We have always needed, because we're so finite, we're so limited, we're human. We need these tangible memorials that God gives. We're going to observe one today. But as we do it, communion, or participate in baptism, whatever it may be, it does us no good if we're forgetting the truth that's behind it. It does us no good to look at a memorial if we don't remember. And we need to remember that our God gives us real victories over our real enemies. But we have to go through a real battle, don't we? God doesn't just Move us right along. This isn't a time-traveling existence that you have, as much as you may want it to be. Joshua and the Israelites, I talked about this a few weeks ago, they could have, you know, said to God, can we just fast-forward this? Like, can you just take care of them and then we'll go in? That would be much easier, right? That's not how God set it up. Some of you might want to go directly to heaven. You're going through lots of battles, and you may want to hit that fast-forward button or that time-travel button, and God, can't we just be there already? Why are we having to deal with all of this? Because God is most glorified in this. God gets the most glory this way. That's why He does anything that He does. And He gets the most glory by bringing you through the battle 
not relying on your own strength, but totally and utterly by faith, relying on the strength of God, your commander, giving you spiritual victory, giving you relationship victory, whatever it may be, as you walk through this life as a sinner among other sinners, that the gospel, when it has preeminence in your life and by its power, your life is changed. You think God gets glory from that? Yeah. He gets all the credit because this is His doing. He's the one working. And at the end, when you stand there with God and you look back on this life, you say it was only by His grace. It was all because of God's good grace, His pleasure, His kindness working in this life. Well, today as we observe communion, I do want us to see it as one of those tangible faith boosters in the battle. God is the one leading us. He's encouraging our hearts. He's the one reminding us that in His death, He put our enemies to shame, didn't He? I just barely mentioned, I just referenced that Colossians 2 passage, but we're remembering that. We're declaring victory through the death of Christ today. As we participate in communion, we're remembering what He accomplished, that His foot is on the necks of our enemies, that God is the one who gets the ultimate victory. Communion is itself a memorial, and we need to remember that Jesus, who is God, He took care of our spiritual enemies on the cross. He grants us all favor and victory through His work. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. The death, the penalty that we deserved, Jesus took on Himself. You notice that those kings that we just read about They were hanged on trees. And in the law, it says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Well, in the epistle to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that Jesus became a curse for us because He was hanged on a tree. He was on the cross in our stead. Instead of you, it was Jesus. He was totally undeserving of the penalty And you are utterly deserving of the penalty. But He took it for you, out of love for you. And not only did He die, but He rose again. And Jesus is who He said He was. He proved it by walking out of the tomb. He was able to walk away because He has power over death. Our sin is so devastating. And we are so incapable of doing anything about it, that even one sin would require the sacrifice of Christ. If all that there was was the sin of Adam, he still needed a Savior, didn't he? He couldn't remedy himself. He couldn't fix himself. Our sin, collectively and individually, brought about the death of Christ, and he took care of all sin through his atoning work. He didn't pick and choose. He took care of all sin. And you are able to be fully, totally, utterly forgiven of all of your sin because of what Jesus did for you. You are able to be washed clean, forgiven once for all, all sins past, present, and future, if you believe in what Jesus has done. If He is your merit, if you're not bringing alongside any of your own merit and saying, God, Look 
how I filled in the gap that Jesus left. Don't say that in any way, shape, or form. Because Jesus paid it all is what we're seeing, isn't it? All. Jesus paid it all. And if you are resting in him by faith, it's all forgiven. And this memorial is for you. 